Good morning. Our essential text this morning is from Romans chapter 8, verse 29 and 30. And for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And and those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. The word of God. Um, Good morning, my name is Chad. We have a thinking cap sermon in front of us. So while the many are still dropping their kids off, why don't we just really dial in and just pray uh, for our time together. Uh, Lord, I thank you that, and I pray that, we would see what is offered to us here this morning in the gospel truly is the most countercultural best news that we have been looking for and longing for in our entire lives. And so I do pray uh, for clarity, pray against any confusion, and, uh, but ultimately, Lord, help us to really take literally these promises that Lord, we have been loved from all eternity, and you have a vision and purpose of our lives to make us like Christ. And all that that literally means that That is the vision for us. That is remarkable. And I don't think really many of us in this room really believe that or know how to take hold of that. So help us this morning. We pray that you would be glorified, that we would, uh, our hearts would be melted by you, and it's in your name we pray. Well, it's like, you know, when August comes around, I feel like summer is just drifting away way too fast. And as the summer's going away at a rapid pace, so too have the gross earnings of this summer's Blockbuster as well. No, it's not, uh, you know, another Jurassic Park or Independence Day. It's Barbie. (laughs) The movie Barbie. Come on, Barbie. Let's go party. Uh, It has been the highest earning film of the summer, but also as well for director Greta Gerwig. She is the highest earning uh, female director in the history. And this film, Barbie, uh, has sparked a lot of conversation this summer, uh, just because it raises a lot of social and cultural issues in the film. And if you're like me, just like last month, and you're hearing people talk about a movie about Barbie, like you're wondering, what in the world is going on here, right? This is something you just take your daughter to, and that's it, right? But it has absolutely, well, while I have not seen it, and I'll proudly admit that, okay? Uh, I have not slapped the pink on and headed out to Regal, but... Um, <laughs> I have read some thoughtful reviews from the New York Times and as well the Gospel Coalition. And I think what we come to find is the reason why this movie is gaining such traction this year is because it raises the issue of the day. The cultural question that we've been asking for a long time now, which is this. How can I create an identity that's true to myself, that's the most authentic version of myself, that I can actually choose, to, that I can finally now love and accept myself and be accepted by the world today. 
And what, the beauty of what she has done, and I think why it's caused so much conversation and misinterpretations about the film, is she doesn't tell you actually how to go about that. Jen Oshman wrote a, a great thoughtful article about this maybe a week or two ago for the Gospel Coalition. And here's what she says about the film. She said, there's a significant thread throughout the Barbie movie that ponders creation and creator. And it's the relationship between Adam and Eve and the question of all questions, what are we made for? Spiritual and anthropological questions abound in the film, but answers are hard to come by, which is perhaps because it's a testament to the all over the place cultural confusion on these topics that Barbie has sparked such a multitude of even contradictory interpretations. And a culture grappling for solid handles approach to simply questions of identity, it's no wonder the meaning of Barbie, like the toys we used to play with, make-believe with, is essentially what the reviewer wants it to be. Because without God and Scripture guiding the way, questions of human identity, including gender and purpose, default to subjectivity. See, we live in a cultural moment right now where we are earnestly and rather dogmatically convinced that to live in accord with our feelings, though they're very subjective and very fluid, to live in accord with our feelings is the most authentic thing we could do. And it's really one of our, our highest virtues. You know, even though there are things saying, and so in fact, to commit apostasy culturally today is to betray your feelings or to deny them or to repress them. Why are we so into this? And I would say, I think it's absolutely, I'm utterly convinced it is part of our creation and our design and yet the tragic fall. Because what we're looking for at the end of the day, when anybody sort of finds themselves, what's the next thing that happens? They go out into the world and say, look, I've crafted who I am. I've now, I've now I love myself more. And now you've got to love me too, don't you? Look at me, see me, love me. That puts an enormous amount of pressure for us to get it right. What does any of this have to do with Romans 8, 29? Because some of you are beginning to wonder, okay? Everything. Because the gospel of Jesus Christ puts all of this in reverse. It's the only message in the history of humanity that begins and starts with there is a love for you and an acceptance for you that has existed for all eternity and it is going to carry you through for all eternity. The basis of a relationship with God and your identity for the Christian, it starts and it's shaped and formed completely by you're already loved before you've done anything good or bad. It literally is hard to believe. And I think that's why we're all trying, the world is so adamant of trying to do it because we're trying to find what we don't have when we walk away from God. So if you just stay with me, I think this is a really helpful sermon. First of all, let's look at the kind of the worldly gospel, the fragile identity. I believe it's very fragile. Two, the gospel, love as the basis of identity. What would it look like for you to live out of that identity? And then two, becoming our true self. What is our true self really? What is it? What does God have in mind for that? So the fragile identity, love at the base of identity, and three, becoming our true self. All right. Now, I told you last week that we were going to finish Romans 8 all the way through verse 39. We're not, uh, because I realized that'd be a two-hour sermon, and I hate to disappoint you guys not to go two hours this morning, but uh, Romans 8.29 is literally um, so loaded. Now, I know some of you are just in and out this summer, and you haven't been here, but if you were here last week, we covered this verse, Romans 8.28, where the Apostle Paul has been saying, that God has a purpose for our lives if you're a believer. 
And what he's doing, what he's always doing is this good purpose that no matter what happens in our lives, he's always orchestrating everything that happened in our lives to bring this good purpose out of our lives. And that, that purpose is ultimately, he answers it for us here in verse 30. The purpose, what he's working, the good that he's working in our lives is to conform us into the image of Jesus Christ. Now, for the modern person today, let's just stop and recognize that how countercultural that really is because the modern person today would look at that and potentially say, my goodness, you know, this is the hope for the Christian is they're going to be conformed in the image of Jesus. Then how is that good? What happens to me? How is that authentic? What happens to myself in the process? Now, Paul's not saying you cease to become who you are, but many would look at that and say, my goodness, you know, what happens to me? And the reason why is because ultimately what we believe culturally more than anything else is that we should be conformed to the image of ourself. We should be conformed into our own image and then find out what our true self is, find out what our most authentic version of ourselves in order that we can finally love ourselves and accept ourselves and then we go out in the world and we go out and seek to get it and sort of be, you know, accepted by the world around. And so one of the last things we ever want to do or be is something that we are not because we view that as potentially being very inauthentic and maybe, maybe even repressive. And this mindset, this ethos is permeating it in everything. Uh, Eric Theonis, he teaches at Biola University. He teaches people going into ministry and he's seeing it among many of his students. And he basically would sum it up like this. of sort of like in the era right now, there's this idea that to live out of conforming with how I feel, to not live out of conforming. I got misprinted, my bad. There's the idea to not live out of conforming with how I feel makes me a hypocrite. Do you hear what he's saying? We're so, one of our idols of the day is to never not be authentic. And I'm not critiquing authenticity. I'm a four on the Enneagram. I eat this stuff for breakfast, okay? I've been authentic before it was a fad. I'll be authentic when it's not a fad, which shows how authentic I really am, okay? I'm glad you got that one. There you go. All right? But Romans 8.29, I want to point this out. Please just really dial in. In first century Rome, it was countercultural. It was just as countercultural. Why? Look ahead. A couple chapters later, the Apostle Paul says to his audience living in the Roman Empire in the first century, he's bringing this up. He says, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, i.e. his, you know, what is your purpose? What is good, acceptable, and perfect? And now why was he saying these things? Because here's the truth. No matter whether you live in 20, the first, 21st century here in the West, or you lived in the Roman Empire in the first century, every culture and every era and every time always has a gospel that says, if you conform to this, now that's what you know what you'll get. You'll be an acceptable, lovable person. And see, in the first century, what were people conforming themselves to? They were conforming themselves to the Pax Romana, right? In the first century, the Roman good life was the way, if you conform yourself to the Roman good life, and indulgence and in pleasure, you know what you'll finally get? You'll, you'll be this person to be accepted. But nobody now looks back at the 2,000 years later at the Roman Empire and says, well, that worked for everybody. There was rampant racism in the first century in Rome. Uh, misogyny, sexism, 
classism. Who was pointing that out? Who was contradicting this? It was the Christians. Why? Because they were conforming their lives to Jesus Christ and not to the world. You see, deep within the human heart is there's this deep longing every single one of us have right now to be loved and accepted by what is most affirmed in the very moment. And Romans 8 invites us to consider something different. I'm not trying to be distracting with this illustration, but I want to point something out. Uh, Earlier this summer, I was driving, and uh, I turned on NPR, and Elliot Page was being interviewed. If you don't remember the name Elliot Page, uh, he wrote an, uh, a memoir that's out, so he's making the media circuits, but formerly was Ellen Page. If you watched the movie Juno, you kind of remember and maybe know a little about the story. And it reminded me of Elliot Page's original announcement in 2020 on Twitter, or whatever we're calling Twitter today, the tweet, Z, whatever it is. But 2020, we call it tweets, and this was tweeted out. And it began like this, this announcement said, I can't begin to express how remarkable it feels. Listen to the language. How remarkable it feels to finally love who I am enough to pursue my authentic self. And immediately, just that, that line right there was, was you know, of course, you know, plotted by celebrities, athletes, even a politician retweeted and said, it's wonderful to witness people becoming who they are. Congratulations, Elliot. But later on, if you read this and you can look it up, you can, you can begin to see just how fragile it is when you build an identity entirely on yourself. Because Paige went on to write this, very vulnerably. He said, my joy is real, but it is also fragile. Because the truth is, despite feeling profoundly happy right now, I am scared. And then, as you continue to read this and read this, all of a sudden it takes a very angry tone and a very defensive tone and begins to accuse those who disagree with the choice of having blood on their hands. And it's promising to attack anyone, and it won't be silent who sort of dissents or disagrees with that. And I realize I'm not trying to be risky here or distracting. My point is to simply point out what happens to any one of us. If you choose to place all your eggs in your basket, your identity that you've crafted, in order to gain acceptance, I'm telling you, it will leave you so vulnerable. I read this and I realize I had no idea how to much in common with Elliot Page because I do this kind of stuff all the time. Do you know how many times I walked out of here on a Sunday feeling vulnerable and scared or maybe even defensive? Because I wanted you to really like my sermon. And part of my identity gets trapped up in stuff like that just as it does with parenting, as it does with finances, with career and success. If we choose to put an identity entirely on ourselves, no matter what is being affirmed around us, we can't shake off this terrible feeling of insecurity. It's just never enough. It's not the verdict. If you put your art out there, your business, your work, your intellect, and you're saying, this is what makes me me, I need you to see this is what's me, and I need you to accept this, you will be so defensive, so trigger-happy, so insecure and empty. The risk of sounding reductionistic, I think Elliot Page simply is looking for the answer of Romans 8.29 has to offer. Because every single one of us 
in this room is looking for a love that says, will you just love me at the core of who I am? Will you accept me? Will you love me just as me? But Romans 8 stops the madness and it says there's a way, there's an identity that can happen to you in your life. There's a message out there. A cosmic, eternal love that has existed for all eternity that says your identity starts and finishes always with you are loved. You are loved. What did that look like? Let's take a look at the second point. Okay, now we come to these popular words. We've had a little hard illustration there. Let's talk about predestination now. That'll just clear out the building this morning, right? <laughs> All right? Let's just make it real easy. Uh, everybody's favorite subject. He says, you know, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. And like, wow, good night. What are we doing now uh, this morning? Well, uh, that's not what Paul's taken up here, just so we're clear. That's not the mantle he takes up in chapter 9. I want to point out, the Apostle Paul is writing to suffering Christians in the first century. Now, why is he writing to suffering Christians? Because of everything he just said. They were suffering because they were conforming their lives to Jesus Christ of Nazareth and not the Pax Romana. And that started to bring economic and social, even physical persecution and even death. And the Apostle Paul's writing to comfort. You say, well, how does, talking about predestination, comfort people? Well, that's not, again, what he's taking up here. I'm talking about this word foreknew here. And scholars get tripped up and it becomes this whole debate. You know, people say, oh, I know God's up here and he can see into the future. So he knows all the choices people are going to make in the future. So in that sense, it works backwards and people are sort of predestined to choose him. Again, that's just not what he's bringing up here. The word foreknew here, almost every single one of us thinks it means knowledge, intellectual knowledge, uh, cognitive knowledge. But in Hebrew, in the Old Testament, and Greek, the New Testament, the word foreknew means something entirely different. It doesn't mean knowledge. I mean, God, of course, knows the future, okay? He knows everything. But it actually, the word foreknew is actually talking about intimate affection. So just stay with me. Genesis 4. We come to Genesis 4. And we're told, here's that same word in Hebrew. It says, now Adam knew his wife and she conceived. Wait, wait a second, what? Like, the writer of Genesis is not saying that somehow Moses is walking around the house. He's like, hey, Eve, I know you. And all of a sudden, boom, she's pregnant, <laughs> okay? <laughs> I know you. Bah! I mean, that's very fertile, okay? But uh, the NIV says, no, Adam had sex. He made love to his wife, and she got pregnant. It's the same word. The NIV gets it so much better. And what that captures is this. Think about it logically, okay? Eve was naked. <laughs> Duh. She didn't have a fig leaf on at this point. She has laid herself completely out at the essence of who she is. She's as vulnerable as she possibly could be. Think about it, right? And Adam is saying, I love you. Adam has made now himself completely vulnerable to her. Why? If you read in the beginning in chapter 2 in the Hebrew, when Adam first spots Eve and it says, you know, God kind of walked her over to him. Do you know what it literally says in Hebrew? He just looks at her and says, whoa! He's floored by her. He loves her. He's blown away by her. She just does it for him. And he just loves her. Why does he love Eve? Because he just does. He just loves Eve. And because he loves Eve, not because of anything good she's done, because he just loves Eve, what does he want to do? He wants to give all of himself 
to Eve because he loves her. Okay, what does this have to do with anything? Paul is saying, from all eternity's past, God has done the same. That's what he's saying. God knows you more than you know yourself. You can spend your whole life working on yourself, doing all these different things, trying to find yourself, do this, that, and the other. And I'm telling you, you'll never know yourself as much as he does because before you were formed in the womb, he has loved you intimately. He knows everything about you, not just the hairs on your head knowledge. I'm talking, he loves you like this. The same word. And because, if anything, If God saw in the future and saw you into the future, we've already been told in Romans 5, what did he see? He looked at the future, and at the right time, guess what? You are still sinning. That's what Paul says. It's actually, of all the right times in the history of the world, what did Christ do? He went and died. What did Christ do? He gave all of himself. He made himself naked, literally on the cross. He gave all of himself because... He loves you. And you know what? When you love somebody, do you know what you do? When they're at their worst, you move towards. You don't move away. Because God has foreloved you. And that's the more accurate word here. He has foreloved you. At your very worst, he moved towards you and made himself naked as possible. He has given all of his best, every single aspect of himself poured out for you because that's what people who are in love do. That's the kind of thing we just happen to do. My wife often asks me this question. Do you love me? And I'm always thinking to myself, haven't I not told you this once before? (laughs) Remember the year 2000 when I said that? Uh, No, it doesn't work. Work, okay? That's not, okay. So, After she asks me, uh, do you love me? And I say, yes. What question is coming next? Do you know? Say it out if you know it. There you go. Somebody got it. Why? Why do you love me? And I have learned through the years there's an answer that is completely insufficient. Do you know what that answer is? I just do. I just do. And, you know, she's hanging on every word right now. She wants to know. So what does she want to hear? Uh, she's more paying attention than any other moment in this sermon. She wants to know is because, you know, you're beautiful. You are mature. You're classy. You dress classy. You're a great wife. You're a great mother. You're smart. You're a great, you know, just life partner and friend. But the Apostle Paul would actually tell me. He'd actually have my back on this. He would say, actually, the correct answer is to say, I love you just because I do. And why is that? Please. Because, see, again, the gospel's the opposite. If I say it's because you're beautiful, well, guess what? Beauty's fleeting. Intelligence is fleeting. Work is fleeting. All these things that we say, this is what makes me lovely, that's, that's meritocracy. That is saying I am loved on the basis of what I do. But for the Christian and for the gospel... The answer is, it can't be that way. It cannot be that way. Because there's a cosmic love that has pre-existed before you have done anything good or bad, that he just loves you for being you. Children, my era, we grew up, and we turned in on the PBS at that magic hour to watch this man with a cardigan say these words, you've made this day a special day by just your being you. There's no person in the whole world like you. And I like you just the way you are. 
Fred Rogers was a Presbyterian minister who understood Greek. He understood what he was doing. He was pouring into children this message. But even Mr. Rogers is not perfect because the reality is, if you really understand, if you really understand that somebody has loved you like this forever at the absolute cost of himself, that kind of love will not leave you just the way you are. It will absolutely change your life and transform you. Becoming our true self. What does that mean according to the Christian? The gospel of the world from the Garden of Eden when Satan arrives has always been this. You become something, you become more knowledgeable, you do this, you have these accolades, you've got these superlatives, you do something in order to be loved and accepted, and you become that. You transform yourself. You're always becoming more and more every day something more lovable, lovable version of yourself that you can finally live with and others around you can live with too and say, I love you. But this message of the gospel of Jesus Christ literally is the complete opposite of that. It reverses every single one of us. It says you are loved, you are accepted, and if you really understand what that means literally, and I don't think really any in this room really knows what it means. Because it's one of the hardest messages to believe because nothing in the world is like it. We haven't even grasped a taste of what this really means to really know what it means to be loved like this. It's so hard to grasp, isn't it? It is so hard to believe. We just, I don't even like being alone with myself sometimes. It can be so terrible to myself. But look, if you have a taste of what this love is and you conform yourself to the object of this love, which is Jesus Christ, then it will change you. See, the promise is you are loved on anything you've done, but God has a vision and plan for your life, and it is so glorious. Not only are you loved like this, but do you understand he loves you so much that he is promising to literally make you so glorious that you're going to be one day for all eternity. Do you know what the finished version of yourself, what the author and perfecter of your faith is going to do to you? He's going to make you like himself. I mean, the apostle John, I don't think we really understand this. Do we take these promises literally that the apostles who knew Jesus or better yet were known by Jesus? Do we really believe him when they say that, that we're God's children now? We've always been loved. But he is, he's changing us. And one day, what we will be, one day has not yet appeared, but when we know that when we appear, we'll be actually like him. Because we'll see how it is. C.S. Lewis used to say, and I've quoted it many times around here, if you could see the finished version of yourself or the finished version of this person sitting next to you right now, you'd be strongly tempted to worship what they will be or what you will be. There is no greater promise in the world than to have this kind of love but to also have someone who loves us this much that is promising to make us this beautiful thing forever. Beckett Cook puts it like this. He says, Becoming more and more like Jesus, the truest human being who ever lived, is a far more authentic transformation than becoming more and more like whatever self my fluid feeling suggests on any given day. Because our primordial parents rebelled against God in the garden, we all suffer from a distorted mind, will, and emotions. Our true identities and relationship with God were suddenly cut off, but the only way back is through trusting in Christ. 
Reconciliation to God brings us back to our true authentic self. Being in a right relationship with our maker is nothing less than what we were made for. The apostles promised you've got to be like Jesus Christ and nothing less forever. Theologian John Murray put it this way. He said, God's love is not passive. It's not a passive emotion. It's active volition. And it moves us determinedly to nothing less than the highest goal conceivable for his adopted children, which is conformity to the only begotten son. How is he going to do it? See, the promises, we call this the unbreakable chain of salvation. He's showing us how the finished work of Jesus is applied to our lives. First, he reaches back. He talks about justification. I'm not going to get us in the weeds here. But ultimately, what he's saying is, if you're a Christian, you're more than just a forgiven sinner. That's way too low of a view of what justification is. You are accepted because you have now the righteousness of Christ. This is why, because Jesus didn't just die for you. He lived for you. And you get all of that. And the promise is this. See, this is why in the New Testament you see over and over again the writers of the New Testament call their audiences saints. They call them new creations. Why? Because this is true right now because of what Jesus has done. But when we get into this, and there's no place in the entire Bible that really talks like this. He says, those whom he justified, he also glorified. Now, what in the world does this mean? Well, we have a term, we call it glorification, and it refers to the future. It refers to the day you step into the kingdom, when there is no more evil, no tears, no death, no suffering, perfect justice, unspeakable joy, over and over again, because you will have stepped into that moment, Apostle John says, when you are literally like Jesus. But Paul writes this in the Greek in the past tense, even though it's a future reality. And why is he doing that? This is so odd. He's doing it because he's saying Jesus Christ has so, it is so certain what he has already done and what he is going to do with it. We can speak of it as if it's already happened because it is that certain. Now, why does that matter? Because if you, you and I put any thought to this and imagine and take literally and walk out the door today, what Paul is saying to you and yourself, that means that you who right now is really struggling and all your woundedness, all your addictions, he's speaking of the future so as if it's in the past, while right now where we struggle with self-hatred and we have this insecurity and this defensiveness. You will finally and fully and forever be what you're always meant to be. The truest, most authentic version of you because you will like, be like your brother, your king, your friend, and your savior, Jesus Christ. He's speaking here of the future in terms of God being able to see in the future. And he's speaking in terms of certainty no matter what you believe about yourself right now. And I know many of us believe a lot of lies about ourselves. No matter how much self-loathing, no matter how much condemnation, we'll look at that next week. This is your future. And it is so certain, we can speak of it almost as if it has happened. It's a reality that Jesus Christ, if you're a Christian, he is weaving into your life every millisecond of your life, every breath you take. This is the good purpose. And he is using all things for this good purpose, which is to be conformed to the image of his glorious son. I'll close with this. I do, when I do weddings, and I've done a few <laughs> in 15 years. By the way, this Tuesday would be my 15th anniversary of moving here to plant this church when I moved into town. And uh, thanks. I didn't mean to do that, but 
I'll do this. This person right here was the first person I met, Natalie Pinto. Uh, she showed up with a group of Grace Community Church and helped unpack my boxes into my, off my trailer. I didn't even know that. And here we are, 15 years later, still in our church. It's great. Um, but I do weddings, and one of the things I do is I give a charge. And I just happen to always read this part of The Meaning of Marriage from Tim Keller's book called The Meaning of Marriage. And here's what I say to couples. Within this Christian vision of marriage, this is Keller's words, not mine, here's what it means to fall in love. It's to look at another person and get a glimpse of what God is creating and to say, I see who God is making you, and and it really excites me, and I want to be part of that, and I want to partner with you and God in this journey you are taking to his throne, to glory. And when we get there, I will look at your magnificence, and I will say, I always knew you could be like this. I got glimpses of it on earth, but now look at you. Whenever the years someone has seen you at your worst, which is what happens in marriage, and knows you with all your strengths and flaws, and yet commits him or herself to you wholly, it is a consummate experience. To be loved but not known is comforting, but it is incredibly superficial. To be known and not loved is our worst fear, and it is driving us right now culturally. But to be fully known and truly loved was a lot like being loved by God. And it is what we need more than anything. And it is what the Apostle Paul's offering in Romans 8, 29 through 30. Jesus got a glimpse of us and loved us at our worst, not our best. What a consummate experience. If only we could believe that. And when you and I finally see him face to face, he will look at our magnificence. The magnificent he has designed for us from all eternity's past and say, I always knew you could be like this. I got glimpses it on earth, but now look at you. Lord, I pray you would fight off whatever is preventing us from taking hold of this. This is an amazing, radical, revolutionary message that has shaped up cultures and times for over 2,000 years, and it always contradicts every culture because you have something vastly more in store to conform and transform our lives by. It's this eternal love. And it is the promise that you will make us nothing less than like Jesus Christ. We believe, help our unbelief. Amen.